Hi, Evan. Thanks for coming to the podcast. I'm excited to to learn more about you and have an interesting conversation on your research and your your areas of interest. So um, please introduce yourself to us. We'd love to know, to know more about you. Yeah, thank you, Sophia. Uh, really nice to be here. Uh, my name is Evan Groover. Um, I'm a plant biochemist. So I study sort of the inner workings of, of plant life. Um, and I'm I'm really specifically a synthetic biologist. So I, uh, I sort of am involved in the process of engineering plants and sort of designing them so that they might take on new functions uh, beyond what nature gave us. Uh, currently, I'm a, a PhD student at UC Berkeley. I'm sort of towards the end of my grad student career, but uh, wrapping up my thesis and, and my PhD um, and, and sort of thinking very broadly about how we can be using uh, this tool called CRISPR-Cas9 this new sort of gene editing technology towards sustainability and toward sort of advancing um, our, our collective uh, ambitions as, as a species as we grow into a much more populous and uh, and like this warming world. That's really great. Are you doing this at the Innovative Genomics Institute? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So I work at the IGI, um, which is sort of a, a, a really uh, fantastic interdisciplinary institute that works on a whole slew of issues that might be addressed by gene editing. Some of them are related to agriculture, some of them are related to climate, others are related to, to human health and treating congenital illness. And so I specifically work sort of in the, in the planty uh, cohort at the IGI, we're working on uh, agriculture and climate change related issues, but I work with uh, an incredible team of interdisciplinary scientists tackling all sorts of, of pressing issues. So you're studying biochemistry in college, right? And before that, well, you you had sort of a, could we call it a double major in uh, music as well? So tell us a, a little bit more about that story and what drove you to plants overall. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I was a, I was a, pretty into music when I was young. That was like the thing that I was always most interested in. Um, I think, you know, simultaneously, I, I don't want to like, leave part of it out. You know, I was always really interested in math and science as well. But when I went to school, it seemed that, you know, one of the most exciting things that I could probably be doing with my time was playing music. And so that was what I spent a lot of my time doing. I'm a jazz saxophonist. Um, but when I, uh, I started taking introductory biology classes, uh, just out of curiosity. And uh, when I first started learning about biochemistry, it sort of blew my mind um, to you know, to understand that these things around me, plants and animals that I, I totally love uh, and was always really inspired by, even as an artist, uh, they have these actually like really sophisticated programs of engineering going on inside of them, you know, and that my, my mind that, you know, sought to understand things and sort of understand the inner workings of things again, um, could actually be applied to, to living things just absolutely blew my mind. And so that was, that was sort of part of it. I remember sitting in my introductory biology class learning about how plants sense blue light, which for most people is probably like totally banal, but like for me, like I was learning that there were these proteins that are specifically sensitive to certain wavelengths and like, you know, learning, they, they triggered all these complex, you know, behavioral responses in plants. So learning that was really inspiring. But I think what really set me over the edge, you know, I was like kind of flirting with biology for a little bit. I was spending <laughs> some time in the greenhouse. Um, what really set me over the edge was this thing, uh, was learning about this thing called synthetic biology. And so this was around, you know, I, I don't want to like out myself for how old I am, but this is a few years ago when synthetic <laughs> biology was really coming to the fore as like an industrial uh, discipline. And there were, you know, companies like Ginkgo were just sort of coming to fruition. 
saying that you know we're going to use uh, you know organismal engineering as as a, as a process by which we can produce things and by which we can replace traditional more you know uh, engineering engineering disciplines and that was so inspiring to me that understand to to understand that we could actually sort of shape uh, the you know the nature of of <laughs> the organisms that we, we we grow and eat and produce and so uh, this really got me excited and it got me working on in, in biochemistry labs and then you know when i heard about crispr this is probably about you know eight or ten years ago now i pretty it almost feels like i just decided right then and there it probably wasn't that uh you know instantaneous but looking back i remember hearing about crispr and just being like i have to work on that and you <laughs> yeah. know it's like so exciting um so here i am some years later and uh, actually working on crispr that's awesome <laughs> and still I, I have to say still really exhilarated by it it's you know it's an incredibly fascinating space both from a scientific and just sort of a, a human ethical perspective so definitely well you know i've lately now now that we know more about you that was kind of the introductory part as well we we can uh, perhaps dive into into some of the specific topics that you you work on through your research and uh, one of them that uh, actually i'm interested in is also the perhaps humanitarian part the social point of view of agriculture and synthetic biology who we are building these tools for, who are we making these technologies work for, and so on. And part of, uh, I think, that is is your um, class uh, in, you know, uh, teaching some African people about these technologies. So how did that start? <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, That's there's a lot there. Um, so, so first off, I'm sure that everybody that is listening to this podcast is, is super smart and, and, you know, sort of like, uh, well, well acquainted with with CRISPR, but for for the lay people and for you know maybe my friends and family that are going to hear this, uh, it's just <laughs> worth pointing out. So CRISPR is this tool. Uh, it was discovered here at Berkeley uh, about ten years ago now, that allows us to precisely modify the genomes of living organisms. So it's a it's a really interesting tool because it's derived from nature. It was actually like adopted from a bacterial immune system. Uh, but we've sort of, we've sort of taken this tool from bacterial immune systems and we can use it to to make pretty much any edit that we might want to make um, in in the genomes of other living organisms. And so I, I specifically work on um, sort of using this tool to to modify plants. And maybe we can talk about later, you know, sort of the types of things that I think are really interesting to do to to plants if you can really uh, precisely uh, engineer their their development. But um, What's also really interesting about CRISPR is that, uh, and, and sort of defies people's expectations, uh, is that it's a really um, it's a really inexpensive and accessible tool. And so, uh, barring uh, you know sort of uh, patent litigation and you know sort of uh, legal protections, actually CRISPR is extremely inexpensive and and sort of relatively easy to operate with a, a pretty small, uh, or I guess semi-modest molecular biology setup. And so what that means is that you know scientists over the all over the world can be using this tool. Um, and so I, I work uh, with a, a really inspiring team of scientists at the Innovative Genomics Institute, which is sort of the institute that has sort of spearheaded uh, the development of, of these tools, um, along with many others and, and the global scientific community, of course. Um, but we um, some some months back, um, my my boss and and a sort of principal advisor, David Savage, uh, uh, along with others, um, 
that are involved in an institute called the African Plant Breeding Association, Association suggested that we might teach a course to scientists from all over Africa about how to use CRISPR to sort of uh, promote uh, well, broadly agricultural sustainability. And so Africa has a lot of really distinct agricultural uh, issues that it has to face uh, in the coming decades. You know, it has a lot of mouths to feed, it has to curb malnourishment, and it also has uh, a really huge amount of biodiversity that it, it has to protect, both from the perspective of sort of growing, uh, you know, sort of really intensified agriculture as to not, you know, sort of like cut down rainforest and other protected environments, but also, um, you know, it, it has a lot of incredible crops that have been domesticated there that are really only appreciated by consumers there. So they they, grow, they eat all sorts of foods there that are, are really awesome and uh, maybe haven't reaped all of the benefits of modern uh, breeding technology that we, that we use here in the West. And so I think uh, we, we saw that there was this incredible opportunity to sort of go teach a course to um, scientists now from seven different countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And so uh, over, the, over this year, we've been going out to Nairobi, Kenya, uh, flying out all of our students and, and teaching uh, these really awesome uh, molecular biologists, you know, how to sort of do the contemporary practices of, of CRISPR-Cas9 in agriculture. And so it's been really awesome for me, you know, in part because I get to work with these scientists that are, um, you know, they're from all over and they work on really different crops uh, from me. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I have to say it's it's always really validating. I, I love plant biology and I think I've stuck in it uh, because the people are just awesome. And, you know, yeah. I, I, it's really amazing to meet such a, a diverse group of scientists that all have this Thing in common that we're just absolutely fascinated by plant life and and interested in sort of uh, promoting uh, sort of the better intuitions of our, of our nature uh, as humans in, in promoting sustainable agricultural systems. Yeah, it's been really fun. I love that. Yeah, also the it's not only about the technology again; it's also about the opportunity of of giving these tools to people to better you know uh, their their welfare and their opportunities to to grow different things as you say to preserve their i like to call it sometimes uh, their biological um you know assets if we could call them like that you know their their biodiversity so mm, you mentioned something interesting which was crispr patents and i'm very curious about that so i'd heard uh it was either people at Berkeley or at the Broad Institute that got a patent. What does that mean? Uh, does it cover all, you know, the suite of CRISPR tools or is it just like very specific enzymes they use? And what do you think the impact is being in terms of using these technologies to to innovate? Yeah, that's a really great question. And yeah, I really like what you said there at first. I think, you know, it, it really is the responsibility of, of people developing technology it's, you know if it, if it does stand to have humanitarian impact to make sure that it can get in as many hands uh, as possible so long as uh, those recipients you know are going to are going to use it ethically and then towards uh, you know safely i suppose um the answer to that question so like so crispr cas9 and and other crispr tools you know have been basically pulled out of the dirt you know we've sequenced them from from microbes in the dirt from our saliva and from our gut bacteria you know they're all sort of uh, environmentally derived tools that have then um you know many of them have had patent protections placed on them by the the labs that have 
first discovered them and, and you know, sort of first demonstrated their applicability towards maybe human health or towards agricultural improvement. Um, the, the answer to your question is pretty long, I have to say, and it really depends on the country about sort of mm. the, the jurisdiction of, of patent filings uh, is pretty complicated when you start working across international borders. Mm. Um, and and I, we've been finding this as, as we've gone to Africa, we're realizing that we're working with scientists that work that are from countries with all sorts of different legal systems. But I guess um, without getting too in the weeds, I maybe what I would hope to impart to you is that in the future, I hope that we can have a system wherein there exists a mechanism by which we can share these tools openly, um, sort of, uh, so that they can be used by people that need them, because there, there really are people that depressingly need them around the world. So I think this project that we've been facilitating in Nairobi, um, you know, sort of speaks to that need in, in some capacity, but I think more work will need to be done to make sure that there exist open access alternatives for CRISPR editors uh, that can be broadly employed to, to solve humanitarian issues abroad. Interesting. Yeah. And so, hmm, I thought that there was like, a, then, then there's still hope, right? It's not like the single lab that has this patent will be able to perhaps charge, uh, license it to every single person that wants to use it. I mean, there's so much to yeah. say. I mean, I think this space, at least in, in, in my country, in the U.S., you know, the, the sort of the landscape of being able to patent protein sequences, for example, is, is rapidly changing. And I think we're mm -hmm. sort of coming to a place now where the prospective value of certain protein sequences is high enough that, you know, people are, are really starting, starting to kind of like push at the existing uh, sort of regulations and, yeah. and sort of test them. You know, I think I, I was, uh, I don't want to say I was so excited, but I'm very interested, you know, that now sort of in the advent of machine learning for protein design, you know, there are mechanisms by which you can take uh, the structure of a protein and backtrace it basically to a bunch of different protein sequences, many of which might not be protected under uh, hmm. you know, some some like patent protection. Yeah. And so this presents an opportunity for people, you know, maybe with a little bit more of a hacker sort of ethos mm -hmm. to sort of start participating in this space. So sure. um, that's just one example of, of ways that I think a lot of this regulation is going to be tested. In, in the coming decade. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty excited um, to, to see how that develops. I, I'll say that I, you know, I, I don't have a lot of um, personal investment in, in patent protecting protein sequences. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it'll be uh, sort of in our best interest as a species to make sure that we can share these tools as broadly as we can. For sure. That, I find that overall a very interesting topic because I think, as you say, the regulations have been changing ever since we, I don't know, since recombinant technology was used for the first time and people were like, can we actually like put a patent on, you know, a certain organism modified in a certain way? We know that we, we have uh, stuff like that in, uh, in crops that are breeded in uh, or that have a specific genome have had a history of being breeded in a certain way. And yeah, I, uh, I wonder what that will continue to look like with these technologies as well. So yeah, I mean, there's just so many ways when you look closely at biology that it sort of defies our, our ability to categorize things mm -hmm. or put things in a box. And so I think, you know, there's always going to be, I think so long as you and I uh, work in biology, we'll continue to see sort of 
interesting examples of how, of how uh, biological progress sort of defies, you know, the, the existing uh, framework of, I guess, capitalization for, for lack of a better term. Sure. So plans are complicated, right? They have actually too many different sets of uh, chromosomes, sets of genomes inside of themselves. You know, we tend to think of them. We Actually, I don't think people, most people, or at least myself, before I was interested in plants, I didn't think uh, to use, uh, I didn't used to think of them as such complex organisms, you know, as you mentioned, uh, how they have proteins that react to certain wavelengths in specific ways. And uh, I recently was seeing on Twitter about this uh, paper that, you know, they, they were like reacting to sound in certain ways. So we are starting to just like discover perhaps the tip of the iceberg of, of what plants can do. Um, they're they're proteins, their genome sequences. Um, I wonder, what are some of the most bl- mind-blowing things that that you've seen plants do? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, there's like so many scales <laughs> by which we can, yeah, you say like, you know, plants are complicated and that, that really is true in, in so many ways. Um, I think, you know, what, what really initially impressed me about plants is sort of uh, this paper that you it's sort of in the vein of the paper that you alluded to it and and it's really that plants are so sensitive to their environment and that actually they are really dynamically processing um and responding to so many signals that we as humans don't even appreciate so a lot of those you know are light signals but they also have incredible sort of chemo reception so they're sensing all sorts of uh you know things about the chemical environment of their soil um and they're integrating all of those signals in uh, mostly at the level of, of genetics, so of, of gene expression, and using this to sort of guide their development. And so I think what really sort of, I, you know, for lack of a better term, like kind of like radicalized me about plants was this realization. It was like, you know, I see a plant and I've always assumed them to be these sort of static, you know, uninteresting just exactly. parts of our natural environment, <laughs> right? But then you start to learn about them and it's like mind blowing. It's like they mm. are doing all of these things. And they, um, they're contributing to a broader ecology that is perhaps invisible to us, you know, in, in modernity, but, uh, you know, even, you know, sort of maybe indigenous groups of humans or, or just other, you know, or more ancient cultures could appreciate the extent to which that they were interacting with each other and interacting with other animals and, and giving meaningful cues about the world uh, through their behavior. And so, um I, I understand I didn't really give you any specific examples. I guess like... Uh... I mean, the the light one was a good one. And you actually mentioned something interesting as well, which is how um, they, are, they have become throughout history a very important part of human culture. And not only... I'm, I'm interested also in the all of the different compounds um, that plants can produce and that are not necessarily heavily studied by science, but, you know, some, um, you know, ancient cultures and even today we can see people like using certain compounds to try to treat some diseases, right? So I've, I just find that an interesting topic to study as well. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And to mm-hmm. me, that is like the most uh, at least from a personal perspective, this is one of the most compelling um, reasons why we should really care about the state of our planet. You know, I think that there's climate change is sort of abstracted along all these sort of, uh, you know, different axes and they appeal to us all emotionally in different ways. But I think from a personal perspective, I think caring about biodiversity loss isn't just caring about, you know, sort of cute 
you know, fuzzy things, yeah. you know, becoming extinct in different environments. It's it's lots of useful and, and potentially impactful tools um, that, that are being lost. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of my one of my favorite applications for CRISPR and one that is really nascent and hasn't actually seen a lot of uh, a lot of play yet is using CRISPR to rapidly domesticate uh, plants that other aren't otherwise domesticated. Mm-hmm. And so humans, you know, over about 15,000 years uh, generously have, you know, domesticated maybe a few hundred crops and we've yeah. turned them into food, we've turned them into medicine and fuel. Um, but, you know, there's thousands or, uh, or millions of different species of, of, of plants and other organisms on this planet. And so they all have some latent potential to be helpful for us or be turned into something that might be really useful for us. And so I think making sure that we're able to appreciate all of that biodiversity uh, is is really important, especially in, in the coming era of synthetic biology. That's really interesting. Uh, tell me, is there any specific... Uh, plant that you think would be interesting to domesticate or that people are trying that you've seen in these papers? Yeah, this is, I mean, my, you enter the, um, the, the real, uh, I don't even know. I want, I don't want to say like, there's a lot of like hobby plants, I guess, that, mm. that I'm fascinated in, in domesticating or improving along certain axes. Um, if you're curious though, the, the best paper on this is, um, is a paper from 2018 from a team in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Um, where they redomesticated uh, tomato with mm-hmm. just four CRISPR gene edits. And so they basically took like this wild tomato plant that was growing, was, I mean, it was likely native to Peru uh, mm-hmm. or like some Andean range, as is the case for most tomatoes. But they um, they domesticated it uh, nearly towards, you know, sort of like, I guess, agro-commercial utility uh, just uh, from a wild plant using CRISPR. And this is a demonstration that we can actually repeat, you know, thousands of years of progress in a few months now that we have yeah. CRISPR. And so it makes you wonder, it's like, okay, what else is out there? It's like, what, you know, what, just because, you know, it, maybe our indigenous ancestors didn't appreciate the utility or the prospective utility of a certain crop doesn't mean that we couldn't. And so I see, you know, whenever I see like a sidewalk weed or, uh, you know, a really fast growing um, sort of invasive plant, for example, I always sort of have a twinkle in my eye because I wonder, you know, why is it able to grow so fast? How come it's so productive? Maybe sure. that would make a good crop. Mm, those are interesting questions to ask as well. You mentioned um, this this technique of re-domesticating these plants. Is that part of directed evolution or would that be like another whole topic yeah i wouldn't say it's so much directed evolution per se i guess you could imagine sort of doing a a similar process to like bacterial or viral uh directed evolution on plants through like a big screen or something Mm -hmm. um but i guess what i i think it actually um is at least insofar as it's been demonstrated so far, it's actually a really uh, intentional design process Mm -hmm. where we sort of look back, you know, we look at a wild plant and we look at our modern tomato and we say, okay, well, here's where the changes that were made. um, And here's the changes that we would have to make to, to go through this space. Gotcha. And what's really fascinating about that is that you realize that, you know, when we domesticated plants from their wild ancestors, we accepted all these trade-offs. And so, you know, for example, in the same way that like a a golden retriever has hip dysplasia, right? It's Mm -hmm. really cute, but it has problems, right? And and these are owed to the fact that, you know, there were genetic bottlenecks that we just had to accept as we were breeding them. 
so too is, is, is true for crops, right? So, you know, when we made rice uh, bigger, you know, we, mm. we sort of maybe made it less like efficient at processing nitrogen or, mm. you know, that, that's, that's just like an arbitrary example. Or, you know, it's like when we, sure. you know, domesticated tomatoes so that it was more, uh, you know, shelf stable and able to be, you know, transported in trucks, we made it lose all of its flavor, right? So mm. and we don't necessarily have to accept these trade-offs. You know, when we envision the future of our of our you know beautiful biotech utopia, you know we can imagine that we're not going to have to accept any if if we do our job right as synthetic biologists. So it's a it's a really interesting premise to imagine sort of hitting the reset switch on on some of these things that we take for granted. When I mentioned biology or specifically plants being complex, I was also thinking about something that I've heard and it is that plants are not the easiest organism to modify genetically. So tell us a little bit more about the challenges, specifically, you know, working on CRISPR, using CRISPR to, to edit these plants and, and there are many different genomes. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really great point. Um, and yeah, the, the sort of the, the real comparison is that, you know, we've developed CRISPR as a tool for, for mammalian editing, for editing humans mm -hmm. uh, to be actually at this point, you know, relatively sophisticated, right? We can drop a CRISPR editor into the brain of a mouse and it'll edit, you know, three neurons perfectly. Um, whereas plants, it's like, sometimes there are just whole species of plants that we can't even do CRISPR on because they're, mm -hmm. they're totally uh, sort of recalcitrant uh, by, by some standard. And so, you know, this is owed to a lot of different things. A lot of it actually does have to do with what you said. It's that, you know, plants have huge genomes, like mm -hmm. typically, you know, sometimes even like, uh, you know, many, many times larger than, than the human genome. And uh, that makes it harder for CRISPR tools to do their job, just to find the right target and to make the precise edit. Um, and so uh, that's that's part of it. And then and then part of it is just that there, there are far fewer biologists that work on, or molecular mm. biologists at least, that work on plants than work on humans, right? Actually, I'll ask you about that as well. Why do you think that is? I mean, I haven't, you know, looked at the numbers, the statistics of, um, you know, the 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 agriculture market, you know, the, the whole size of uh, everything that's sold in, in, in agriculture and, you know, the pharmaceutical side of things. I don't know if that's something that drives people more to it or is it something more like maybe people are more attracted to solving problems that are, you know, ultimately going to solve it for, for themselves, you know, for humans. But why do you think basically that there are perhaps more more human biologists than plant biologists? Yeah, I think it, all of the above. Um, yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I, I feel really fortunate that I, I live in Berkeley, which is a place that, you know, we have a ton of really beautiful nature around us. And so yeah. when you tell people that you work on plants, uh, they're always like, oh, of course, you know, like plants <laughs> are intrinsically useful and, and nice. And, uh, you know, like I, they're a really joyful thing to be around. So why wouldn't you work on them? But I think when you go other places, um, you know, if I if I meet a molecular biologist from New York or something, they're going to be like, well, why don't you want to solve cancer like everybody else, you know, mm -hmm. or like work on other stuff. So I think a lot of it uh, just comes down to sort of the the prejudice that we discussed earlier, which is like, you know, a lot of people see plants and they don't they don't realize that plants are, are really cool and dynamic and, you know, have their own, you know, sort of evolved molecular biological uh, peculiarities. Um, but I think I feel really optimistic about this. Maybe there isn't as much uh, resource allocation or uh, sort of personnel in plant biology at present, but I think that that's, even in the time that I've been in the field, I've seen that change. I think people are getting a lot more excited about plants. 
because they realize that it's a space where huge problems are going to be solved. You know, I, I think when we think about the future of climate change, there's really no system that allows for uh, a, a sort of a, a, a scalable institution of, of chemical reactions like mm -hmm. agriculture, right? I mean, agriculture is like the biggest chemistry experiment of them all. Um, and so if we want to think about sort of uh, reforming our atmosphere or uh, sort of instituting sustainability practices at a global scale, agriculture is really going to be one of the, the key frontiers where that happens. And so I think many, many more young people I see are, are sort of getting involved in plant biology. And that, that's really good because we, we need lots of help. For sure. I agree. <laughs> so it, you, you also talked about Berkeley and California, you know, being good, well, places that inspire people to to work on plant biology or in agriculture. And uh, my uh, question there is, if you think that, well, if you see California sort of leading the climate solutions more than health solutions, whereas the West, uh, the, the East Coast, sorry, is leading more of the, the health solutions in biotech? Or is that not like a definite thing? That could be, that could be true. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I meet a lot of really fantastic uh, scientists that are working on, on climate related uh, issues here in the Bay Area. Um, but I think that, you know, I would hope that they, they exist all over. I, I, I mean, I certainly know a lot of fantastic scientists working on similar issues, far fewer, mind you, uh, on, on the East Coast. Um, but, you know, I think that uh, I, I would hope that the future, you know, sort of maybe through the democratization and the open access of, of different biotechnologies, we're going to see people from all over the world participating uh, in this field, right? I think, you know, there are, there are unique uh, problems that sort of prop up everywhere. And I, and I think that we want to make sure that, that everybody's able to participate and, and sort of uh, do work that, that makes sense for their, their home communities, you know? So I'm, I mean, I'm a, I'm a California native, I'm from the Bay area. Um, and, you know, this, this feels like a good place to be for me. because I, I, I quite like, just like the vibe here. And I, I like uh, how many sort of inspiring and, and brilliant scientists I get to meet, but I think uh, I, it would be a little bit sad if it were just people here. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, that makes sense. By the way, um, we can jump into another Zoom call once this uh, ends, but let's talk about books. So you recommended me uh, <laughs> reading <laughs> The Botany of Desire, and I have it right here. I, I just started it. Uh, yes, I... I didn't expect it to be like um, such a detailed book in in terms of the the biography, I guess, or the um, stories of the people that are involved in in growing these things. So I remember uh, I'm reading about uh, Johnny Appleseed, right, <laughs> and how obsessed he was on on apples. So uh, I don't know if there are any things you you would like to point out about this book or any others that are, you know, related to plants. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I, I, I have to give some lip service to my, my neighbor, Michael Pollan. <laughs> yeah, the Botany of Desire actually did really inspire me when I was young um, to, to pursue uh, sort of plants in, in some sort of abstract direction. But I, I think, yeah, the, the important idea for that book for me was just how actually, you know, people like Johnny Appleseed 
how, how individual people can actually be really influential in just, you know, sort of steering the course of evolution. You know, I think it, it maybe had never uh, previously occurred to me that there exists ways that, um, you know, through sort of really intentional, diligent work, you can, uh, you know, produce uh, a, a lot of good through, through producing plants. You know, I, I, I really can't believe that this guy is so obsessed on, I mean, Johnny Appleseed on, on Appleseed. Yeah. Had you had you heard of him like in your life before this point? Michael Pollan or uh, Johnny? or Johnny Appleseed? No, never ever. Because you you hear about he's something of like an American folk hero. You mm. like learn about him when you're a kid that he's like, <laughs> but you don't really ever know what he did. It's just like he's a Apple guy, you know. And then, <laughs> but he was a real dude, and he was really. It's it's actually I have a book. Uh, I'll just show you briefly, that is full of all of the pomological varieties wow. that have been in the U.S. That's so and they're all like watercolors. But um, they are really cool because they point out like he really like led to the propagation and domestication of so many of these different American varieties, wow. which is really inspiring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, it is mentioned in the book that actually, you know, apples are some of the most, how would you call that, like the, the plant, the species that has the most varieties or one of the, yeah, yeah, broad and diverse. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I really like that, what you said, because if Johnny could influence, you know, steer the I guess, evolution and reproduction and proliferation of a single species of, of apples and in that way also influence like the development of societies and, you know, the growth of a of a human populations, then what won't be, we be able to do with tools like CRISPR and with synthetic biology? That's just a question, uh, a vision that I that I ponder, because, again, most people don't think of plant or agriculture, or perhaps they, a lot of people didn't used to think about this field as, as something that could be very impactful. But in a way, it's like one of the most fundamental pillars of society, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that is certainly the case. Yeah, I think, you know, I think the, the sense that you get from a lot of people, and, and rightfully so, is that maybe the bottom of desire really dispelled me of this notion myself mm -hmm. um, is that, you know, plant science is really slow. You know, you have to wait many, many generations, maybe years to produce anything useful. And, you know, for, for many species and for many domains of plant biology, that's still very true. If you work mm -hmm. on like a tree, like John Appleseed <laughs> did, you might wait your entire life to, to produce, you know, the, the final product, your own magnum opus. Uh, but in the era of CRISPR, that's rapidly changing, right? So we can, you know, now in a single generation of a plant's life, make all sorts of different meticulous and intentional edits. And, and what that means is that we're able to sort of explore the space of mm -hmm. phenotype uh, much, much more sort of, uh, uh, I guess, just deeply and sort of, it adds sort of a, a new richness to the symbiosis uh, that, sure. that sort of exists between humans and, and the plants that we grow for food. When you talk about exploring new possibilities or new capabilities of plants or just getting to know them better, it comes to mind what Basecamp research is doing for microbes. And I wonder if anything like that um, has 
or if, if people are trying anything like that for plants, you know, because a large, actually, we, we don't know most of, of plants' genomes, right? We haven't sequenced them. We, there are some metabolic routes that are still being, well, a lot of them that are still being distilled, you know, and yeah, I, I would like to see something like that, but I also don't know if that's more of an effort that, you know, if, if maybe, you know, just as we had a human genome project, we should have like a plant genome project or a plants genome project rather. Well, you're, you're really preaching to the choir. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I think I know of, of several sort of, uh, large scale efforts that are, so, so just, uh, for the, for the listener base camp, as I understand it, they're going and sequencing microbes from, yeah. from all sorts of extreme environments on the earth and sort of collating, uh, a relatively comprehensive or, 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 you know, maybe one of the more comprehensive lists of, of microbial associated proteins that exist, uh, out on the earth. And yeah, I, I think it would be amazing to do that for plants. You know, there's like, mm -hmm. as you said, there's all sorts of diversity that uh, would be nice to capture at the genomic level and, and you know, hopefully would, would help us, you know, either in agriculture or in the domestication of new crops or in the appreciation of, of biosynthetic pathways to make chemicals or drugs or medicines. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, again, I know, I know of a few companies and institutes and organizations that are, that are doing similar projects, but I think, uh, we're still at a point technologically where, uh, sort of a, a callback again to earlier, you know, plant genomes are really complicated. Uh, they're, they're much more complicated there than, uh, microbial genomes typically. <laughs> and sequencing them is, uh, is a pretty non-trivial effort. And so I think, uh, a lot of, a lot of this is owed just to the fact that, you know, they're huge and they're extremely repetitive. And so what we're seeing now is that uh, you know sequencing technologies, especially long-read sequencing technologies, are just now sort of a, a allowing us to sequence especially stubborn plant genomes. <laughs> um, but you know, sort of the consistent development of, of sequencing technology will be required, I think, to be able to do this at scale. Um, as will just uh, massive institutional investment, uh, so <laughs> we can appreciate okay. uh, you know all all the plants that that we have on this planet. Are there any companies that you personally like to follow or that you found interesting in the last couple of years, you know, in anything related to agriculture? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of companies that I, I think are really exciting in agriculture. I think agriculture, you know, as compared to other fields of just chemistry and biopharma, um, you know, it's really, there are a few sort of incumbent seed companies that, that sort of, uh, dominate the space and I'm not going to give them any lip service, but you know, they, we all know who they are. Um, and you know, it's, it's exciting to me, at least insofar as, you know, this is good for some people to see them, uh, embracing, uh, more sort of sophisticated gene editing technology. Um, but I think what really excites me is, is sort of like a lot of academic, uh, and, and non-for-profit efforts, um, in the plant biology space that are really beyond just like trying to grow more and better food, uh, really sort of pushing the frontiers of, of what we can be doing with biotechnology. That's that's the stuff that that really gets me exciting. And so, you know, an example of this is I just got back uh, from uh, visiting uh, with some of my colleagues in, in Nairobi. I was uh, working uh, with the group of, of Lina Tripathi, who's a, a really fantastic and inspirational plant scientist. Um, and she and others are, are working on bananas and they're, they're specifically trying to revive 
a species of banana that I am super excited about. Um, mm -hmm. So it's this banana that, you know, it's, it's called the Gross Michelle and it was sort of the predominant variety of banana in the US up until about 80 or 100 years ago, at which point it went almost extinct by a fungus. Mm -hmm. But when you go to the grocery store now and you buy like, I don't know, like banana candy, like Laffy Taffy or something, it tastes like a Gross Michelle. It doesn't taste like any of the bananas that you can buy in the supermarket in the US. And so all of us know the flavor of the Gross Michel, but none of us have ever had one because it's almost extinct. And mm -hmm. so uh, Dr. Tripathi's lab is uh, using CRISPR and other GM technology to breed a variety of Gross Michel that will be resistant to its fungal pathogen so that more people can, can appreciate that. And so- That's awesome. You know, De-extincting plants, I mean, that's, to me, that's like the- People talk about de-extinct in mammoths, but like that's that's still far away, but we are de-extinct in bananas, so. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think bananas are a little easier than, than mammoths, but yeah. I mean, it's, but then uh, the other thing that I, that I, I want to mention, you know, I think de novo domestication is great. I think, you know, just in brief, I mean, I'm really excited about the application of machine learning and, and sort of more sort of like model-based approaches at improving the genomes of crops. I think that the, the space of, of just data in a crop genome is sometimes so big that uh, it's going to, you know, sort of take, uh, more of a statistical method than the you know meticulous you know gene by gene mind of a human to to, to improve things. Um, the other types of of ideas that are really exciting me exciting to me in in science right now are ideas that will sort of um, allow us to sort of change the way that we we grow food and and derive food from seed. And so, like one of my favorite CRISPR related projects is this project. Um, it's primarily led by a series of, of labs at, at UC Davis uh, here in California that are working on making somaclonal rice. Mm -hmm. So this is rice, you know, so if you're a, a rice farmer, if you're pretty much any type of commodity crop farmer in the US, you have to buy seed every year from a, a seed company. Um, and the, there's lots of different reasons for this, to, you know, that seed companies improve the varieties every year. They're, you know, they typically are growing hybrid seeds, which won't, you know, sort of like breed true into the next generation. But uh, in any case, farmers spend a lot of money on seed um, and what this team at Davis was able to do with CRISPR is actually make a variety of rice that uh, basically just breeds a clone of itself into the next generation. And oh. so instead of having to buy, you know, seed every year, a farmer, uh, especially a farmer mm -hmm. perhaps in, in the developing world or in the global south, that, that couldn't afford to buy super expensive, you know, biotech seed every mm -hmm. year might be able to just grow it themselves uh, through successive generations as a result of this process. Yeah. Um, and the way that they did it, I, I'll just mention in brief, is, is fascinating because they actually made a, a they made a plant that was able to to sort of truly clone itself. It's this process called called parthenogenesis, mm -hmm. wherein instead of needing to be fertilized, it just takes its its male gamete or its female gamete and it just grows it into an embryo itself. Um, and so processes like this that you know sort of could be really disruptive uh, to the way that we sort of grow food and could actually, um, this is sort of a recurring interest of mine, sort of decentralize the way that we are, are, are producing food as a species so that it's not just reigned over by a few big companies, I think are really exciting. So, you know, I, I feel really um, optimistic about, about the next few years, um, or maybe optimistic isn't the right word, but I, I feel that there, there's great potential. And I think there's a lot of onus on us and, and the biological community to, to capitalize on that yeah yeah i'd heard about the problem as 
five companies owning the world seats and you know the what this really means i think is that they are you know domestic well um they're creating this very specific varieties and then you know they sell it to farmers right and then they cannot you know regrow them themselves they have to buy them again and so what you're saying the the team at uc davis did was creating this uh, specific variety that uh farmers can actually use without having to you know make it super expensive is that right Yeah, well, that's okay. what you would hope. Yeah, okay. I think, you know, there's still big questions about, you know, who's going to own that technology and who's sure. going to commercialize it. And, you know, I, this is this is why I say I, I don't want to say I'm too optimistic, right? Because right. The, the history of agriculture is is the history of consolidation. Um, and sometimes that's for the better. You know, I think, you know, it's, I'm, I'm not always down on these big companies. Sometimes they allow for, you know, awesome humanitarian work. But But I think in, in a lot of cases, uh, it, it might be better if, if farmers had, you know, the, the ultimate control over, over their seed supply. So yeah. uh, I feel uh, excited about that angle. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, I think it'll be, uh, it'll be an important generation uh, for sort of making sure that we don't lose a lot, a lot of the biodiversity on this planet. And I think the, the general thrust of, of industrial agriculture uh, perhaps doesn't appreciate that diversity as much as, as you or I. So yeah, it's, uh, just a, a, something to keep in mind, maybe. I guess it's also a complicated problem, as you say, because uh, these companies have uh, really, really refined their process and made these crops, you know, resistant to, to more stuff. And, you know, that's, I think, one of the the complex parts, you know, having such advanced technologies, like w when we talk about CRISPR, right, like, are we going to prefer to to use CRISPR despite its ethical implications in, in humans? Or are we going to like, just let, um, you know, others use them and not be enhanced ourselves? I think it's interesting to see how, how many of these, you know, general thought experiments also apply in agriculture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And you, you mentioned decentralization, which is a topic that I like to dive into as well. I think it, it not only is the case for genetically modified seeds or, um, well, CRISPR in general, but also we, we are seeing this with vertical farming, or at least that's what I, you know, heard or understood was the promise of it, you know, being able to grow anything anywhere. And Where do you think, well, first of all, I would like to get your thoughts on, on vertical farming, perhaps not as opinions, but as you, what you've heard from whether it's efficient enough, why are we just being able to grow, you know, lettuce and kale and not grains, for example? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, those are all sort of, most of those answers, the answer to that last question is sort of like a techno-economic one. And I, you know, yeah. I think I'm, I'm not an expert on, on sort of the, the economics of, of vertical farming. I think, you know, generally the, the answer that's been doled out to me by my friends in the vertical farming community is that uh, leafy greens are the things that really make expense, make, make sense at cost um, to be growing. Uh, you know, it's land uh, is, is relatively inexpensive. If you, if you actually think about it, uh, you know, uh, compared to having to operate a, a super high-tech facility with, with growth lights. And, you know, so certainly it, I think vertical farming, I guess maybe to, to ask you, to answer your real question is, is really exciting to me as a synthetic biologist. Um, 
because, you know, there are a lot of things that I can imagine wanting to do to plants, you know, or like mm -hmm. I have plants do for us that maybe you wouldn't want to grow that out, you know, over, you know, millions of acres uh, in, in the Midwest of the United States or in central Mexico or something. You, you would want that uh, to be grown. Maybe it's a, it's a plant that's producing a, a high commodity uh, or a high value commodity chemical or something, or it's producing a vaccine or, or some type of medicine. You know, these are things that maybe it wouldn't make sense to grow them in a traditional agricultural context, but it would make a lot of sense to grow them in a, you know, a very specifically curated uh, sort of in, in intentionally parameterized environment. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that vertical farming really allows for, not to mention the introduction of automation and, you know, all, all sorts of sort of uh, things that allow you to do huge amounts of labor, you know, for, mm -hmm. for, for not a lot of actual human work. And so that's really exciting for me. I think when we, we think about the, the plant biology lab of the future, you know, it would be amazing to be sort of doing, you know, huge automized experiment or excuse me, automated experiments mm -hmm. that allow us to, to really probe uh, plant phenotype in a controlled environment. Um, and so sort of the sky's the limit on that. But I, I really hope that sort of the, some of the, you know, the initial players in this space um, from a, from a company perspective are able to demonstrate to us that it makes sense uh, for, for some types of products. Yeah. yeah. I like, I, I hadn't thought about the fact that, that we can not only use this technology to actually grow, you know, different kinds of foods, but also test different experiments, as you say. And uh, the, the techno-economic part is, is definitely something <laughs> to look at as well. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have any anything you'd like to tell people, you know, we are seeing that agriculture is still not like the, the most... Um, famous or sexy area just yet however it's uh it's something that we humans need it, it's, it's indeed a, a great area to get into to discover you know the secrets that plants have to show us and the problems that we could solve through them so any any message to the new generation of plant synthetic biologists <laughs> yeah well that's i think if uh I'm not sure that we're ever going to convince anybody that agriculture is the most, uh, <laughs> you know, the sexiest area to work in, but I don't think it has to be, you know, I think, um, I, but I do think that a lot of people are like me that really care about where their food comes from and care about the, the effect that their food system has on, on the broader environment and, you know, sort of what it, what it does to the ecology of animals and plants and wild spaces on the earth. And so, uh, I, I mean, I, I believe that agriculture is one of the best, if not the best place to, to be working in if, if, if you care about those things. Um, and I think there couldn't be a more exciting time to be working in it. I think that there's going to be incredible progress in this coming generation. And so, uh, you know, in, in the short term, you know, maybe if you're not an agriculturist, what, what I hope your life is going to be like in regards to plant CRISPR is that you're going to see lots of new exciting products on the market. And so, you know, this will mean actually really just like to again borrow a term like really like sexy products you know mm -hmm. whether it's like fruits that are you know much more colorful or much more flavorful or have you know different um sort of qualities or uh just like plants that are able to be grown with fewer you know herbicides and pesticides because they have some of their own innate immunability as the result of genetic engineering i think all of these are really exciting frontiers where we can sort of rethink 
a lot of the trade-offs that we've come to accept as a species when we think about farming. And so I think it's it, it couldn't be a more exciting time to be in this space. Um, and I, I feel really grateful to have had an opportunity to talk about it with you, Sophia. Thank you for, for having me on. For sure. Thank you so much for all your insights and sharing your, your knowledge with us and perspective, Evan.